Welcome to the AccuSmile Podcast, where it's my mission to help new practitioners of Chinese medicine navigate from school to career. I'm Stacy. I'm an acupuncturist and herbalist, podcaster, coach, and creator of Magical Networks. Be sure to check out all four pillars of the podcast where I cover case studies to sharpen your clinical skills, mindset Mondays to support your mental health, new practitioner interviews to prove that you are not alone, and all things business from launching your practice to negotiating your pay if you choose to be an employee. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors. So if you would like to support the podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors page on the website to claim your special AccuSprout offers. When I first started my practice, I was actually kind of a disaster when it came to my books. I hired an accountant who actually laundered money from another client. So I went on a quest to find a bookkeeper who really tailors to and loves working with acupuncturists. And I found Sarah at Horizon West Bookkeeping, and I'm feeling pretty fortunate. Sarah offers acupuncturists and the AccuSprout community a couple different packages so that she can meet you where you are. If you're new to practice, she can come in and do what's called a QuickBooks startup package for you, where you get pretty deep discounts on QuickBooks for about four months. She sets up your chart of accounts, assists with linking your bank accounts, makes sure that all the transactions are imported, and then teaches you how to use it with two hours of one-on-one training. It's a killer deal. She also offers cleanup packages and catch-up packages. Not catch-up packages, guys. Catch-up packages. And a monthly package, which is what I use. And I find it quite affordable and so, so, so worth it because, honestly, I never, since the beginning, have been able to keep up with my bookkeeping. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with Sarah to make sure that you guys are the right fit for each other. And you can do that at horizonwestbookkeeping.com forward slash AccuSprout or look for the link in the show notes. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jane, an all-in-one practice management software with helpful features to power your acupuncture practice. Jane offers flexible scheduling options that match the way you work. You have the option of offering one-on-one online sessions for initial consults, meeting in person, and scheduling staggered appointments to accommodate treating patients across different treatment rooms. Jane has you covered. Keep the relaxation going with a seamless checkout experience using Jane's PCI-compliant payment solution, Jane Payments. You can collect patient credit cards securely through your intake form or at the time of booking with an online booking payment policy. This can also help reduce no-shows in your practice. It's a win-win. And Jane's unlimited SMS and email reminders can be sent automatically before each appointment as an extra layer of no-show protection. To learn more about how Jane's helpful features can help you power your acupuncture practice, head to jane.app to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their team. Or if you're ready to get started, head on over to accusprout.com forward slash Jane. And remember to use the code accusprout1mo at the time of sign up to get a one-month grace period applied to your new account. sense of it is harmonization comes into play a lot more frequently than straight totification at least at first with a with a patient when they first come in i think there's an idea that over time as you harmonize the excess qualities of what you're treating diminish and then you might be able to to straight up totify down the line um but i think a lot of times we might tend to skip harmonization and move into tonification too early and then we might exacerbate dampness, we might exacerbate blood stasis, we might create more stuckness in some way. I think that sounds like exactly what I would do. <laughs> like that, yeah, like a rookie thing, that that statement that you just made, totally, yes, I, probably. I, and so you're always, I often feel that way, like I'm chasing dampness and then I'm like bouncing back and forth a little bit sometimes. Welcome back to the show. My name is Stacey Whitcomb. I'm the host of the AccuSprout Podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Phil Settles of ACCHS. That's the Academy of Chinese Culture and Health Sciences located in Oakland, California. Phil is the dean of the DAOM program, which he actually wrote the curriculum for. And I think it's probably one of my favorite. 
He's been on the show a couple of times. He was on most recently, I think, in episode 35 to explain the differences between the DAOM programs and the DACM programs. In the past, he came on and did a case study with me, which was amazing. I have since been working on creating more of those for you. And so I'm super excited because I am here today with Phil again to present a case review. Now, I have to tell you something before we start. I was this student who hid behind the students who liked to talk in class. I hated talking in class because I'm always afraid of, yes, my perfectionist takes pole position and I, I just get super anxious. So this is a little bit of a, um, a leap for me, but it turned out great and you guys are going to love it, hopefully as much as I did. So without further ado, I am going to shift over and we're going to do a case review with Phil Settles of ACCHS. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you so much, Jason. It's nice to be with you again. So he said again, guys. So Phil was on, I think it's episode 35, where we broke down the differences between the doctoral programs. So if you guys are interested in doctoral programs um, and the differences between like a DACM and a DAOM, check out that episode. But today we are actually going to do a case presentation from, let's see here, this is one of Phil's patients, not mine, and we're going to kind of break it down using my beginner skills and his great teaching skills. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your... Sure, sure. Yeah. So the, the case we're going to look at today will be through a lens of uh, a, a form of Shan Han Lun analysis, diagnosis. Specifically, in this case, I was employing a type of thinking, the clinical reasoning, called formula presentation and it's called fang zheng in chinese and uh it's very much represented in the work of dr huang wang from nanjing university and he has a few books out in english like 10 key formula families and um i think it's called like 50 50 medicinals in the shanghan Lun. um so he's got four or five books translated into english and we're gonna delve into this case together through his clinical lens. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that briefly? Yeah. Like, what does that lens look like? Yeah. I think, um, philosophically, I think it's very fascinating to think about different diagnostic styles in Chinese medicine and to think about different types of human logic or just logic, like deductive versus inductive. And the main systems we learn in school are processes of, uh, we use the four diagnostic methods of looking, touching, um, inquiry, and listening, smelling. And we gather all the information we can, and we start to move forward, creating a narrative of patterns of disharmony, uh, a main pathomechanism, treatment strategies, and all of that leads to treatment principles, and then finally, uh, intervention. And that's inductive. It's a very much a step-by-step -step methodical process. Um, and the formula presentation system, I would say, is more deductive, where it's very quick recognition of patterns. And then the questions you asked um, are very um, specifically uh, engaged with in order to confirm or deny the hunch. So it's a system where a hunch is formed very quickly by knowing the formulas well. And oftentimes within 30 seconds or a minute, you could be thinking, ah, this looks like Da Chai Tong or Dan Bui Shao Yasan or Chai Lu Jiao Tong. And then you just ask the specific questions that are going to add to your evidence base for that formula or uh, be counter evidence or make you think, mm, maybe it wasn't Da Chai Tong after all. So that's going to make this really interesting because my chops are a little weak on uh, herbalism. So this is actually really great. I also like the juxtaposition of like my training as an herbalist and and then how this is going to feel a little bit different, which will come out in the questioning. So um, one quick thing before we start, I do know that your doctoral program is um, heavy in orthopedic acupuncture, is that correct? And then heavy in herbalism, would that be fair to say? That's very fair to say. And as a, as a okay. clinician who was involved with creating that doctoral program, uh, I have my own distinction that I made internally, and I know I'm not alone, 
but I also know that there are others who don't make the same distinction, that for a lot of internal medicine cases, for chronic, complicated cases, I tend to think primarily about herbs. And there are some amazing okay. acupuncturists out there who treat dermatology and autoimmune and all kinds of conditions with acupuncture. But I consider my main tool to be herbalism for that. And then for musculoskeletal conditions, for pain complaints, I consider my main tool to be acupuncture and it's kind of uh, uh, associated modalities like cupping and gua sha and manual therapy. So with those two specializations, I really do feel like any patient who walks in the door whether it's acute, whether it's chronic, whether it's internal medicine, whether it's musculoskeletal, that I have very good training through our doctoral program to address that. For sure. For sure. Okay. I'm excited. Let's get into this. So go ahead. So I have a patient that I'm seeing in my practice who first came in about two months ago, um, 41-year-old female. And um, I got a chance to talk to her on the phone before she came in and she let me know that her chief complaints that she wanted to address were irritable bowel syndrome, depression, and the sense of sensory overload. So those three um, chief complaints I knew were what were going to, uh, to have to be addressed. Um, as she filled out her intake form, I was able to see a little bit of a history of uh, previous illness. Um, Epstein-Barr virus at age 15. She'd been in a couple of major car accidents but only suffered minor injuries that she's aware of. Uh, tonsillectomy at 20, some sections at 35 and 38. So that gives us a little bit of an idea as well as her kind of reproductive history uh, and family uh, situation. She's currently taking Effexor since 2009 and has been trying different probiotics since uh, this year, 2022. Okay, so... Interrupting real quick, just to make sure, backing up, uh, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, sort of like a sensory overload situation, like overstimulation. And what was the third? Depression. Depression. Okay. Yeah. And all okay. of those things she's had for more than 10 years. So she would and, you know, certainly fall into the, the sense of chronic conditions. And over 10 years, things had not really gotten much better with the other things that she had tried. Do you have more or should I start asking you questions? Um, well, I could um, kind of elaborate how when I asked her to tell me about her IBS and her experience of it, then she fleshed that out so we could flesh out those three chief complaints. Sounds great. Go for it. So her digestive system and her symptoms associated with digestion, she uh, thought were largely based on her emotional state. Uh, there were certain trigger foods and they were also based on how she was eating, meaning the timing of it and the quantity as opposed to simply what she was eating. Um, so if she eats too quickly or if she overeats, then she will trigger the types of symptoms that she gets. The symptoms themselves are pain in the epigastric region that alternates between cramping and burning, and it travels down her right side of her torso. Um, she generally has a feeling of discomfort in the epigastrium, as I pointed to it as you know, beneath the sternum, the upper part of the abdomen in the center. Um, when I did palpate that later, it did feel soft. So uncomfortable, but soft. It didn't feel hard or rigid. Uh, in terms of bowel movements, she gets constipation for a few days, followed by diarrhea for a few days. And she generally alternates between the two with relatively few normal bowel movements. It's generally off in some way. Uh, and she does get a lot of intestinal rumbling. Um, now that would have been something that I would have asked versus patients volunteering that information. They don't, they don't often talk about intestinal rumbling, but I, the fact that I have that way up when she was first talking about her chief complaint means I was already thinking about something specific and we'll loop back to that intestinal rumbling later. Okay. Okay. Um, she had had an endoscopy and a colonoscopy over the course of the last 10 years, and they didn't find anything. So they were able to rule out what they call organic cause of disease. There was no um, uh, visible inflammatory issue of Crohn's or colitis. Um, so she has all these Great. symptoms, all this discomfort, this, this suffering. But from a gastroenterologist perspective, they could rule out certain conditions. For her nervous system overload, um, circumstances in her life are 
in her words, pretty crazy. Um, a lot of burnout, a recent divorce, solo parenting, two small kids, uh, 50% of the time and trying to keep up with work and all of that feeling somewhat untenable and overwhelming. And she feels exhausted. She also feels like it's diminished her ability to be patient with her kids, to be with her kids in the way that she would like. Um, one of her children, a six-year-old, is uh, undergoing a lot of kind of, uh, I guess, testing, but also care and is likely autistic. And as they've been engaging in that process, she's learning that she is probably undiagnosed with autism as well for her whole life. Um, that she thinks that has a lot to do with both her depression and her irritable bowel syndrome. So she's doing a lot. Um, psychotherapy, trauma therapy has been working very uh, hard and engaging a lot of, a lot of different um, strategies and techniques to try to address a lot of her psycho-emotional issues. This is bringing her back into her body after a long period of being strongly dissociated from her body. But as she comes back in, she's finding it overwhelming sensitivity to lights and sounds, um, feeling kind of frightful, like uh, easily startled. So as she comes back into her body, the experience of being in her body can be very uncomfortable. Uh, and her responses to things seem to her disproportionate to the things themselves. Um, in terms of depression, a lot of sensitivity, a lot of sadness, um, feeling a lot of times of kind of hopelessness or, or just lack of uh, lack of joy, lack of happiness. And then to go with that sensitivity and sadness, there's also irritability and anger and frustration as well. And that she, she might take that out on others. So it doesn't just get held inside. She, she can express some of that. So that was her fleshing out those chief complaints. And then it, it shifted to my asking specific questions. Okay. So. Of course, the way I'm trained, I'm hunting down a diagnosis, right? Specifically. And then from there, I would go from diagnosis to formula. Yeah. So that's kind of where my thinking is going to go. And of course, you know, uh, I would ask one of the questions that I would definitely ask is when you were palpating her abdomen, was it cold? Very good question. I didn't write down the temperature of the abdomen. So I don't think it was notably cold or notably warm to the touch. Okay. Okay. What did her tongue look like? Her tongue was pink on the, on the slightly pale side, um, stained a white coat without very significant dark distended subliqual veins. So it actually looks like a relatively normal tongue, pink with a thin white kind coat. Of. Hmm. Okay. And then, and was it swollen at all or no? It was just kind of... Normal. Not particularly. No teeth puffy, marks. No teeth marks. Yeah. So okay. I, I think I even mentioned to her that her tongue looks like a textbook, relatively healthy tongue. Yeah. And then what were her pulses like? Her pulses were most pronounced in the guan positions bilaterally. On the left, it was slightly wiry. Um, and there was a slight dull sensation, which is the spinning bean sensation between the chun and the guan on the left pulse. In the right pulse, it was most pronounced in both the chun and the guan. It felt more floating in the chun and slippery in the guan. Okay. Now let's touch on that dong real quickly because I have a little bit of training there and that you would see as the problem in the epigastrum between upper and lower. Is that correct? Or can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, I think. In, in looking at the pulse as an anatomical representation of the body, with Sun being upper jiao, Guan being middle jiao, Chu uh, being lower jiao, then yeah, that Dong Mai between the first and the second positions would, would really represent that epigastric area, kind of the, right. the demarcation between upper jiao and middle jiao, and generally would indicate some kind of blockage or stuckness. Um, yes. So for her, that's part of her chief complaint is the actual discomfort in the epigastrium. And I did find kind of that correlate in the pulse. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is good. This is hard. This is good. Yeah. Okay. So, so of course, um, you know, many of the, of the, uh, well, I would say wood overacting on earth. How can you not say that? Right. So some liver cheese stasis overacting on earth. 
Um, I was looking for cold, but there seems to not be cold, um, which can also be a big part of, of irritable bowel or loose stool. I'm curious, um, you mentioned a couple things and I can see where you're headed with your thinking a little bit. I kind of want to hear about them. The stuckness in the epigastrum is very important to you. So now I'm reading you. Um, and, uh, and you mentioned something else about that. What else did you mention about that? Um, I did mention as well uh, the intestinal rumbling, which was a question that I right I asked right the gurgling. That's right, the gurgling sounds. The, the gurgling. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, what what are those two things telling you as far as formulas, etc.? Yeah. So a moment ago you mentioned that your mind starts to go into diagnosis, like looking for the path yes. mechanism, and in the formula presentation style. What happens instead is based on a few key signs and symptoms, formulas themselves come to mind. And so you can start to have a hunch for like number one, number two, number three potential formulas that are going to be relevant for the patient versus just that gathering of information and then sorting that information into categories and then making sense of those categories. So with the epigastric stuckness, the the bowel movements that kind of uh, are sometimes hard. And then after the hardness, after the constipation becomes soft and the intestinal rumbling, once she confirmed that intestinal rumbling, um, I, I started to think about one particular formula. Um, I think I can say the name of that formula. Well, can you, let me, let me see if I can start guessing like parts of it. So is this a Chai Hu and Bai Shao? Good, good question. Some elements. When you mentioned the wood earth disharmony, then right away, then I would think about uh, Chai and Bai Shao as a harmonizing approach. So this was a harmonizing yeah. approach, but not with Chai. Okay, let's hear it. Um, so Ban Xia Xie Xin Tang. Ban Xia Xie Xin Tang. Descending, Ban Xia. That's right. So it has Ban Xia and Gan Jiang, which are going to harmonize and distend rebellious stomach qi. Um, it balances hot and cold. Banxia, Ganjiang, Renchen are all warming, but it also has Huangqin and Huangdian, which are cold and bitter. Cold, um, right. And it's got also as, uh, as well the, the Dazao and Zhigansao. So it's got a big emphasis on nourishing and strengthening uh, the middle Jiang, but also on cooling and descending and opening up blockage with that bitter, curging earth type approach so with so talk a second about bansha yeah for a moment i love bansha i love bansha hopotong like i've used it as well for this like opening up a blockage that's going that's especially emotional is there like a bigger relationship with bansha and emotions per se there absolutely is and um wang wang in his teaching about verb indications and formula indications he'll talk about the bansha type and sometimes we use the term mm. constitution um, and in, in the Chinese, it's teacher. The Banxian teacher is like the type of person who responds well to Banxian. And there very often is a psycho-emotional component. Um, and it's often juxtaposed with Chai. So we'll talk about the Chai type and the Banxian type. Some patients really fall strongly into one camp or the other, and some have characteristics of both, or it becomes more difficult to kind of tease them apart. Um, but both the Chai person and the Ban person can have a lot of psycho-emotional symptoms. The Chai type tends to be guarded and is marked more by constraint and holding. So they often have uh, less facial emotion, less emotive faces. Their eyes are more like thin and like a little, uh, I always think of Clint Eastwood, like the sun glaring, mm -hmm. he's kind of squinting, he's got yeah. that poker face and the standoff. Um, ah. and shoot out, whereas Banxia is very emotive and there's a lot of facial expression and the eyes are big and the eyes are really telling the story. So you're talking to someone and their eyes are just, uh, if the window, if the eyes are the window to the soul, the window is wide open and a lot of information goes in with Banxia, but a lot of information comes out as well. So the, the Banxia person tends to be very empathic and can be can have that sensitivity to stimuli because so much stuff comes in for them and they're not guarded they're not poker face um they can wear their heart on their sleeves 
and that creates a kind of vulnerability for them as well. So, and you sort of said that she does express her anger. Like you noted that, right? And that was why you were noting that, like you were distinguishing between a Chaihu and a Bansha type of person at that point. That's a very, very good question. To answer that, I go a little bit outside of the formula presentation system into more like six syndrome, as Suzanne Robidou teaches it, where if there's um, annoyed feelings, but they're kind of contained inside, it's maybe more half and half. If they're more half and half of, of what? A half and half um, being like Xiaoyang or Wei Yin, so that some, some of the conformations are external, some are internal, some are considered half and half. So if someone is annoyed, but they don't express it and they just have like internal resentment, I would actually associate that with Chai quite strongly. Like there's a holding. Uh, and we talk about irritability related to liver G stagnation, and we could have that same thing related to your Xiaoyang disease. It's still Chai. If they express anger, then I might think there's a little bit more fire here. That fire can be a Shigao problem, but I think it can also be a Huang Qin, Huang Lian problem. I see. Uh, so from a Chaihu perspective, if we were going through a little bit more Zhang Fu and the formulas that we learned in our MSTCMs, we could say that maybe the difference between Xiaoyasan and Jiawei Xiaoyasan. If someone is annoyed, but they hold it, maybe that's a Xiaoyasan pattern. If they express it and they get angry and they have more like outward aggression, then we'd say, oh, there's more fire. And then we add the urge to clear heat more strongly. Even if they didn't show heat signs per se, physically, like tongue presentation or yes. Yeah. Still, this, as long this as it be... wasn't going to tank their digestion, right? Like as long as you're not going to. Precisely. Yeah. And we do definitely have a lot of different opinions expressed in Chinese medicine from different teachers and authorities about, well, when the symptoms and the pulse don't match, some people will follow the pulse. Some people will follow the symptoms. Some people will try to reconcile the two, but they don't always align. All the sources of information don't always align in the same direction. So then it does come up to uh, the operator's decision, you know, the clinician's decision about what to go with when they're not all in alignment. Well, and there's just that it's all a learning experience too. Like you, you make your best choice with the formula, move forward, and that's diagnostic how they react absolutely, and what happens. Obviously, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So you just keep moving and and make good decisions. <laughs> yeah. So, tell me a little bit. So there's no concern with the cold herbs with her. How does this? Tell me a little bit about the alternating between constipation and loose stools with this. What is that component? What does that, what does that mean? What is that about? So when we first learn alternating constipation and diarrhea, we do think about wood-earth disharmony. The base formula that we learned, and it's also a Shankhanlin formula, is Sinisan. Now with Sinisan, mm -hmm. I would expect cold hands and feet. And when I started right. to inquire about temperature with this patient, she generally feels warm, warm extremities, sensitive to heat, likes the cool. So there was no uh, physical sensation of cold in her body, not in her torso, not in can, her extremities. Can I stop you really quickly? <laughs> can you, for the people who may not know, can you tell me the what's in Sinisan? Yeah, Sinisan is four herbs. It's Chaihu, Baishao, Jirshir, and Jirgansao. And Thank you. Sydney San is a, is a chai based formula. So it's someone who again has that holding and that type of constraint. And the constraint in Sydney San can be emotional constraint. It could be muscular constraint with cramping or tight muscles or pain. It could be, um, constraint in the actual blood vessels, preventing warm blood from reaching the extremities and causing cold hands and feet. And the cold hands and feet in Sinisan is usually more like fingertips and toes, and it's related to emotional state. And when they move or when they feel really relaxed, their hands and their feet warm up. But when they're nervous or stressed or irritated, then they get cold. Right. Which is, it's often part of, it's usually just part of a formula. It's very, it's very often combined with other formulas. Um, I do a lot of formula combination in my own practice. Some of my teachers, um, if I think about Arno versus Lynx, for example, I think very often gives 
the single formula. Uh, and I think it can be amazingly effective sometimes when it's just three or four herbs and everything shifts. Formula combination or modifications, there's sometimes a little bit more of like a hedging your bet type of thing. So I can catch myself thinking like that sometimes. Yeah. And uh, again, the patient's response will determine whether or not it was a good idea. But for a lot of people, those smaller formulas will be built into larger, larger formulas that they do. Yeah, I tend to, as a as a newish practitioner, like to start with just the ultimate, just the formula and see how they do with that. And if they get a little bit of traction, then I might start, mod, you know, fixing it or, you know, whatever. I think that's it, a beautiful but. approach. Yeah, there's a lot of logic to it. And then you learn what the single formula can do before you start adjusting it every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, so I just took us on a, a crazy little path, but let's get back to um, our patient again. So did you give this formula? And if so, what what happened? Yeah. So as I started to think about Banshe Shishintang, I wanted to find either corroborating evidence or negating evidence. So the first one I'd asked was the intestinal rumbling, and that was there. So that's a big point for Banshe Shishintang. Then I asked about nausea. And there was consistent nausea, lots of nausea, not vomiting. Uh, but even though she started by talking about pain, once I asked if there was nausea, she said the nausea is actually more pronounced than the pain. So nausea for okay. us is stomach cheek counterflow. So now we have epigastric distension, stomach cheek counterflow, loose stools, and rumbling intestines. We've got four really strong points for Baitia Sheshintang. Banshishishintang doesn't usually treat constipation, but for her, it was constipation followed by diarrhea. And there are, there is clinical experience of people talking about Banshishishintang treating the stool that starts harder and more dry and finishing luxur. Now that can be the okay. same bowel movement having a different beginning and ending. It could be multiple bowel movements in rapid succession where the first one is more dry and the last one is more loose. But for her, it was a couple of days of more dry and then a couple of days of more loose. But I still saw the relationship. Mm -hmm. And we could say in a sense that Ganjian, uh, or sorry, that um, Ganjian is going to be warming this lean and Huangqin and Huangzian are going to be cooling. So there could be like a, a hot, dry Yangming component with a cold and damp Taiyin component within the same person. Hot, dry, young Ming might give us the constipation and the cold, the damp tie-in could give us the loose stools. So, See, this is where like as a beginner practitioner, I would have been like, like <laughs> you didn't ask any questions about young Ming well, or a dry young Ming or were you looking or was there something that you could see or... Or you just went to the formula and you're like, okay, I can see where this is. Yeah, that was it. In this case, I just went to the formula. And so ultimately what we give is the formula. So Dr. Huang Huang will kind of emphasize, and he, he's not the first. Historically, there have been doctors in China over the last few hundred years who've argued that what you ultimately give are the herbs. So that your theories and your philosophy of the pathomechanism um, is not necessarily important in terms of it's not what's going to change the patient's outcome. It's going to change the outcome is what herbs select. So in this type of model, it is strongly influenced by, by Japanese herbalism as well, by Kampo, which is Shangdan Lun practice primarily. You start to think about that formula and you start to gather evidence for it. So now I had very good evidence for Banshia Sheshintang. So that was my number one contender. And not everything was perfect. The tongue wasn't perfect for Banshia Sheshintang. Um, and a lot of cases of Banshia Sheshintang have kind of heat above, cold below. So there could sometimes be cold feet. And this person didn't have that. It was pure warmth. Um, yeah. But I felt like I had enough to really still go with Banshia Sheshintang. I did consider also Wendantang. Now, Wendantang is also a Banshia formula. Whereas Banshia Sheshintang is primarily digestive in nature, it's about the epigastric distension, it's about stomach cheek counterflow, it's about loose stools and rumbling intestines. Uh, Wendantang is more about, I would say, depression, dark thoughts, easily startled, insomnia. So it's very much a psycho-emotional formula. There's a, 
Uh, and what's what's in Wendantong? Wendantong is very close to, even though it's not a Shanghalun formula, Forvorm uses it a lot, and I'm very familiar with it. Um, it's very close to Urchintong, which we learn Urchintong is like middle Jiao of land accumulation. Yeah. Um, and Urchintong uses the Banxia Chen Pi Kongo. Wendantong has that as well. So it's got our Banxiat base that we were already thinking about, but it's also got Chen Pi. Um, it also has Jurshur and Juru to address a kind of a phlegmy heat in the chest affecting the heart. So it's okay. a mild phlegm heat disturbing the heart, causing psychoemotion symptoms in Wendantong. And tell me again, sorry, I'm, I'm listening, but maybe you can repeat again, the emotional, the emotions are bigger. What did you say about the emotions with Wendantong? Wendantong, I would say, is primarily a psychoemotional formula versus a digestive formula, at mm, least in the way it, I understand it, and use it, I have seen it used. So I would think, oh, the patient has depression, um, anger, easily startled, doesn't sleep well. Those for me would be evidence of Wendantong. It's a little bit of a phlegm presentation somewhere. That's right. That's right. So Wendantong I had in mind, and then I'd also had a very different formula in mind, which was Dangwe Shaoyasan. And I started to think about Dangwe Shaoyasan, which is Dangwe Bai Shao Chuan Xiong, Bai Jun Fu Lin Zhe Xie. Six herbs, where we've got three herbs for the blood, three herbs for fluids. And the patient had a pale tongue, um, irregular menstruation, with abdominal cramping um, and a sense of breast distension and soreness and a little bit of swelling in her legs for the period. And those things made me consider when Dang uh, Shao Yasan in terms of right. nourishing and invigorating blood um, and dealing with fluids that tend to accumulate and make puffiness uh, associated with the cycle. So that was my number three, like maybe down the line idea. But the same way you'd said as a newer practitioner, uh, you sometimes would like to give the base formula and see what happens. I wanted to give a single formula to see what would happen. So I wrote down in my notes to consider when da tong da wei shao san down the line, but we just gave ban xie xie xin tong. So ban xie xie xin tong, are you doing acupuncture as well? Or are you just strictly doing, is this a, just an herbal consult? I did acupuncture as well. Um, I largely, in a sense, I divided her presentation up a little bit into the digestive component that I was primarily addressing with the herbs and the psycho-emotional component where I did things that were primarily calm spirit with our acupuncture. So I did Ear Shen Men and, and Chinese Sympathetic. I did Yin Tong. Um, I did uh, Heart Seven and Spleen Six. And then I also did. Did you do any abdominal? Did you do CV12 or? I did. I did, yeah, Ren 12, Ren 6, and Stomach 25. So the four points on the abdomen. Ren 12. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that was, that was. I just like to I just like to bring that up because I think uh, um, newbies need to know that you know enough, right? Those are such basic, fundamental, typical points. That is a that's actually exactly probably what I would have done almost to a T. Yeah. Um. So so it's good for you. It's just good to hear, and I and I just wanted to share that with the listeners so that they feel a little more secure in their selections because. I've had new practitioners tell me, oh, I need to go learn something else because TCM doesn't work or, you know, this, this basic acupuncture doesn't work. And I'm like, no, you just need to keep working and it'll work. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, so. I, think, I think our patients give us evidence a lot of times that's very simple thinking. Yes. Very simple poise. Yes. There's nothing, like you said, it was, is basic. The point of prescription was basic. basic. There was nothing really advanced. I didn't have to go to crazy seminars with teachers from esoteric lineages. <laughs> These are standard forms yeah. that we learned. Yeah. And the patients yeah. felt really okay. well getting up off the table, you know, the next few Good. days. In a sense, the herbs, I think, start to work in a way that builds up over time. And the acupuncture is the opposite. It works right away and the effects come down. So when a patient does really well for the first few days after their visit, then I do think the acupuncture had a role to play there. Oh, that's a really good point. I had never really thought about it that way, but I think that's a really also a great way for people who are doing both herbs and acupuncture at the same time to be able to like 
ramp up, like you just said, ramp up the herbs while the acupuncture is kind of dissipating a little bit. So good point. Thank you for that. That timing works out nicely. (laughs) So the first follow-up was one week later. I wanted to see her weekly for maybe about four sessions and then hopefully switch to every other week. And that's, you know, over the two months, that's what we've done. Um, there was some improvement in loose stools, in abdominal pain, in intestinal rumbling, and much less nausea. So really across the board, all the symptoms we wanted to hit with Banxia Xieshintang all improved. Um, at first, she found it really difficult to drink the tea. And by the end of the first week, she kind of had a, a strange, um, amicable relationship with it, where there's, you know, a little bit of comfort and craving associated with her Banxia Xieshintang. And she, so you're, you're prescribing bulk herbs that the patient goes home to cook per, yes? I actually used, um, straight granules. So cream mixed from, uh, from Treasure of the East, uh, was the, the brand. So I don't know. Sometimes the brands use the exact same ratios from the Shanghan Lun. And I actually don't know. Like I, I didn't, uh, analyze the back of the bottle. So I couldn't say the dosage of each herb in there, but it was pre-mixed, but that's why I'm mentioning the company is if someone wants to look up the dosages. Um, so it was yeah, just a single bottle, unmodified, and I would say really good results. Patient, again, 10 plus years of IBS, trying probiotics, trying different things, no diagnosis had really been offered, no insights, no improvement, and then one week of Banxia Xieshintang and everything seemed markedly better. So she was very happy. Um, now she also felt a lot better in energy and mood, but there's a conflating factor there, which was she took a little, uh, leave from work. So one of the big things going on in her life was suddenly less stressful. So the herbs may have helped with energy and mood, or it may have just been her change in life circumstances that she was taking uh, a leave of absence. But I love this too. I love it when just, just to note something like you gave a formula that was going to allow Chi to move. And in allowing Chi to move, she was also probably able to more handle, like handle that transition better. You know, I've always, I've noticed that a lot. Like I've had patients on, um, you know, I had a patient on, on, uh, Potong who is gr- grieving and, um, I talked to her next and, she doesn't associate it, but she's like, you know, we did, we did like two bottles, you know, like consecutively. And I asked her how she was one day and she was like, oh, I think I'm, I'm much better. I'm not, I'm not as bad as I was. And, and, you know, things had changed in her life too, which I think patients attribute that to. But sometimes I think that that acupuncture and that, um, especially the herbs really kind of allow everything to move. It's like amplifies. It's fascinating. Yeah. So thank you for letting me interrupt you on that. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's very true. And um, from like a scientific perspective, we don't have the means to tease it all out and say what what effect was taking a break from work, what effect was the herbs, but they were all there. And the outcome yep. is what we see. And there's certainly, it's certainly plausible that, yeah, things generally moving better, having less stuckness um between the upper and the middle jiao where again when there's stagnation it generates heat that heat goes up and vexes the heart like there's a lot of reasons to think that focusing on this digestive formula could have had these secondary beneficial effects for the psycho state so we kept that going for one more week with just banxia xieshing tong at the end of the second week sleep had not improved everything else that digestion she really said like it's great like her daughter told her, you seem happier, mommy. And her daughter didn't oh. know she's necessarily doing acupuncture or taking herbs or anything. So just things getting better in her life, in her house, relation, you know, yeah. her ability to be the mother she wanted to be with her children. But the sleep had not improved. So that was yeah. like the final thing that I was like, mm, let's see. Because sometimes Banshashashintang absolutely does help sleep when people feel abdominal discomfort or get heartburn or difficult to fall asleep. It can be that activity in the stomach generating heat, vexing the heart. Yep. In this case, it didn't really help with sleep. So then I, I added the herbs from Wendan Tom. So that was my number two in mind. Like in the future, consider Wendan Tom. I added Jershun, Juru, Chen Pi, and Su Ling to Ban Xie Xie Xing Tom. 
thinking there was a hidden phlegm component, perhaps, that was harassing the heart? Yeah, or in a sense, thinking that the, the, the dampness or phlegm that was there was indeed affecting the heart. And uh, so, so tapping into the psycho-emotional component and the heart-calling properties of Wen Dan Tang. So I, I combined them, and in a, in a way you pivot, because they have the same, they're both based on Banxia. So you can use Banxia as like the common friend, and two groups of friends can get together because they all know Banxia really well. Um, Spoken like a true teacher. <laughs> I won't forget that now. That was yeah, great. <laughs> so in herb combination, when there's similar herbal method, I think there's a very uh, a good chance that they're all going to play well together. Okay. And then after incorporating Banxia, Xieshintang, and Wendantang, she liked that formula even more, and that became her base formula. Um, and that did start to affect her sleep. Her sleep started to get better. So now fast forward a few more weeks to, to two months. Phil, so can I jump in? Sorry. Um, did you take any of the sleep questions into consideration or did you, once again, see so you're thinking formulas first uh, with sleep and I would have been like, you know, done the standard, well, are you having trouble falling asleep? And once you are asleep, do you stay asleep? And And how does that play in or not play in? You're directly just like, it's almost like the way that you're working is so much more streamlined than thinking through every thousands of questions and different possibilities that we're trained in um it's just next level and i appreciate it but yeah. is is that the thinking like you're already well i already know the formula so it's fine stace i don't need you know um, i did ask the different questions about sleep whether it's difficulty falling asleep or tendency to wake up whether there was a lot of uh, dreaming whether it was tossing and turning uh and usually for when done tom i think there's an association clinically with with bad dreams with mm. nightmares with again being easily startled she didn't have right. that. She had easily startled during the day, but she didn't mm -hmm. really have bad dreams. She would, she would have easy waking with lots of thinking, which was not the bullseye sleep problem that I would think, ah, went on Tom for nightmares. But for me, it was still fall park enough that the sleep had not been improving with, um, with Banchia Sheshintam. So I wanted a Banchia formula that's a little bit more oriented towards sleep promotion. And see, that's where in my lack of like your teaching the way that your knowledge, I would have then shifted to like a spleeny tonic, right? That's where I would have changed that situation. And I would have continually been playing with this, honestly. So from where I would have been, I would have gone with a Chai Hu formula, right? And then I would have been going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with this tonify spleen, soothe the liver, tonify spleen, tonify heart, like all of that situation so this is interesting it's just juxtaposition and and more knowledge i think that with the the idea that with chinese medicine if you ask 10 acupuncturists you get 11 opinions we don't have integrator reliability and that can be uh, a beautiful thing too because a chai formula might have rocked her world you know like it might have been uh, amazing so uh the fact that things went well with a bunch of shishintang really for us doesn't mean they wouldn't have gone well with a different approach that a different practitioner might have had um, sure, sure. But yeah, it turned out that without really a lot of tonification, I mean, the Banshe Sheshantari is a harmonizing formula, so it does have the Ganjian and the Renshin, the Dadzao, the Jikansao. Right. There is, in a sense, strengthening, nourishing, warming. Um, uh, but it's not like a spleen ching tonic or a spleen yang tonic or anything like that. So with this kind of harmonization and movement, energy got a lot better. A lot of things that we might associate with lean sheet efficiency um, did improve without directly trying to tonify spleen sheet. My sense of it is harmonization comes into play a lot more frequently than straight tonification, at least at first, with a, with a patient when it first come in. I think there's an idea that over time, as you harmonize, the excess qualities of what you're treating diminish, and then you might be able to, to straight up tonify down the line. Um, but I think a lot of times we might tend to skip harmonization and move into tonification. And then we might exacerbate dampness. We might exacerbate blood stasis. We might create more stuckness in some way. I think that sounds like exactly what I would do. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Like a rookie thing that that statement that you just made. Totally. Yes, I, probably. I, and so you're always I often feel that way. Like I'm chasing dampness and then I'm like 
bouncing back and forth a little bit. I just feel like there's this balance that I'm trying to get between liver and spleen and dampness and it's- yeah. Um, and interestingly, this the the debate about different strategies has been going on forever in Chinese medicine since you know, at least the Song Dynasty. We have a lot of statements from historical doctors who are saying, "Oh, everyone else is tonifying too much," or "Everyone's doing this." And then in the Jinyuan Dynasty, we had spleen stomach school and school of attack and purgation, the nourishing school and heat clearing school and you know, these different methodologies or, or ideas of what you should be emphasizing in clinic. So we definitely have folks over time, over the last thousand years, saying that their contemporaries are using too many sweet medicinals and are totifying indiscriminately. And uh, and I think that when we come through TCM school, like that, that could definitely be a tendency that we start to think everyone's deficient or we strengthened and uh, a lot of the doctors that I really admire and have learned from have really made it clear that, that it's overdone and a lot of patients will run into troubles through overtonification. Yeah. Yeah. I can feel that. Like I can sense that with my own minimal experience so far. Yeah. Um, but also too, like that's what we were taught. And so then it's up to us to up level, you know, keep training. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. Anyway. So how did she do with the combination with the wind on tongue? So she loved the combination with the wind on tongue. It seemed to hit the digestive and the psycho-emotional components together really well. Um, acupuncture now is every other week and really is that same approach of com- kind of combination spirit calming with a little bit of digestive. Um, and this seems like a really good place for her to be right now. So she has gone back to work after her her leave, she went back to work, um, was better able to handle it than before she left, but it was certainly an increase in stress again in her life. Um, and then a couple of weeks after going back to work, she got uh, an appointment with another doctor uh, or psychologist who used ketamine. So she'd been waiting for that for a while. And so that's the newest change in the case is ketamine has been introduced and she loves it. She says, would you know, recommend 10 out of 10. Fascinating. I have not researched ketamine. So now that you mentioned it, I'm sure that you've probably researched ketamine. So can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. So I, I don't know a ton, but it is a, uh, it's a hallucinogen. Um, so it's, I think it goes with the idea of kind of like micro dosing and a lot of people finding like a lot of positive, um, uh, impacts on psycho-emotional health. And wellness and productivity and ability to, to feel creative and not overwhelmed, et cetera. Um, it's being used more in, uh, and type, types of trauma. Yeah. PTSD. So there's definitely a lot of research emerging. Um, it's not without potential side effects. There are people who, who it does go badly for the same way we have sometimes patients who went on that ayahuasca or even Tai Chi or Qigong. Uh, or yoga and they, they end up getting a really unsettled spirit from some kind of experience like that. Like I'm sure that does happen with these modalities as well, but I, I have a sense it happens a lot less than when standard pharmaceuticals. I think that, that side effects are less. And in this patient's experience so far, it's, it's been wonderful and way better for her than the antidepressant medication and anti-anxiety medication she tried in the past. So it's been a really nice case because two months is not a long time. She suffered with these conditions for over 10 years. Um, she'd gotten, you know, far better in kind of the, the six weeks or so taking herbs and acupuncture. And then ketamine maybe was the cherry on top, which is just feeling really better than she has in a very long time in her life. Great. I only have one more question and I really push for the twice a week for the first six visits, if they can. Obviously, you're talking about a single mother with a job and small children and juggling a lot of life. Um, but I always tell people, yeah, that's my dream. Like, that's the way that I really feel like this works best. Um, but if, if you can't do that, then we go once a week, you know, and, and I meet you where you are and we, we go from there. It doesn't mean your treatment's not going to be great. It just means that's what we do. Is that, how do you, how do you handle that? What is your thought? process there. Yeah. I think there's a lot of wisdom in the way that you do it and the way that you communicate it. I think, um, you know, we learned that in China, people often get acupuncture every day or like five days a week. 
Um, so they'll get 12 or 20 treatments within a month kind of thing. And we know that there's efficacy with that. We know that when people go to a community acupuncture with increased frequency, there's benefits with that increased frequency. There's research now that's been published about how acupuncture is dose specific. And it even implicates a lot of the research on acupuncture for being underdosed. So it's kind of like, of course, your findings don't show the true benefit because you prescribed it at a lower than optimal dose. If you prescribe pharmaceuticals at lower than optimal dose, it'll also get, you know, a reduced findings. Um, so I, you know, in my own clinical practice, I actually see patients in Oakland on Mondays, in Sacramento on Wednesday and Thursday, and in another town, Jackson, on Fridays. So the way I'm going to look at this spread out means I don't usually see people more than once a week. Um, but that could be to the detriment of, uh, you know, our clinical outcomes. And uh, so I would recommend to listeners, absolutely, to think about seeing new patients twice a week, in particular, when you want to make a bigger change. So when you want to establish momentum with a new patient or when it's someone in acute pain, there's a lot of benefit to doing twice a week over once a week. I also talk about, just to throw this on top of that, like, this is the best bang for your buck. I, I maybe don't say it quite like that, but like for your investment, it's it's like the best way to go for your investment as well. Because people think with their money too. So if they're not going insurance wise. So yeah. anyway, I tack that on as well. Yeah. So yeah. Do you have anything else to say about the case? It was really interesting. I really appreciate your time with this. It's, it's uh, and hopefully the listeners really enjoyed it as well. Um, yeah. Nothing else about the specifics of the case, but just an idea. Again, for our listeners, we come through our master's education and we learn a certain diagnostic method. I would say it's all inductive. It's all that process. Gather as much information as you can, then start to try to make sense of that information. One, that can be very time consuming. Two, it can be complex because now that you've got every sign and symptom through inquiry, um, you start to get many, many, many patterns that emerge and you can make a case for split sheet deficiency and liver chi stagnation and heart blood deficiency. And, uh, you know, and just, you start to get five, six, seven zone food patterns without necessarily a way to navigate. Was there one thing that caused yes. all of the others or do you have to treat all of those things with all of the acupuncture points and herbs? Um, so to be able to balance that with the deductive process of starting to get a hunch right away of, oh, I have I have two or three pieces of evidence for Banchia Shishington. Let me see if there's any more. Within a yeah. minute, within a minute to, to a minute and a half, you could start to just work your way towards the formula you might ultimately be describing if you're getting positive evidence and not negative evidence for it. So uh, that's something that I learned from Dr. Huang Huang. It's something we emphasize in our, our DAOF program. In a sense, we teach both the formula presentation as well as the six syndrome. Um, so we you know, reduce causes for error by reducing uh, confirmation bias. Yeah. Um, you could kind of check your work in a sense by having two different ways where you arrive at the same conclusion. One last question before I let you go. So um, your DAOM program is, like I said before, heavy in herbs and then heavy in orthopedic or, or pain management. Um, does a practitioner actually have to have their herbal portion from the master's degree in order to be accepted into that DAOM program, or can they just come? Very good question. Um, because we're in California, and there's a, a necessity for people entering a DAOM program in California to be able to sit the California licensing exam. Doesn't mean they have to have a California license, but they'd have to be eligible to sit for the exam. So then we have to look at the, the herbal education in a master's and all entrants, all people who enter the program have to have an equivalent education in terms of hours. So if they went to a program that didn't have herbs, then there are a few programs that exist in the U.S. where they can go and study outside of school or after school and kind of uh, top up their herbal knowledge to where they would be able to apply for licensing in California, and then they could apply for the DAOM. Got it. Got it. And I'm guessing they can just uh, contact you to find out what programs might be applicable if they're interested in the DAOM program? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a few that I have in mind that I recommend. So anyone who's interested, okay. contact me. 
Great. And we will have your contact information in the show notes for listeners if they need to contact you. And um, any last words for new practitioners, Phil? Um, yeah, I, I tell my students at, at ACE and CHS, and I think it applies for new practitioners everywhere. Um, one, to have faith in what you've learned so far in the same way we were talking about acupuncture, that sometimes those very basic points can have a very uh, positive outcome and be really helpful to a patient who has struggled 10 plus years. And those very basic points that you already know could start to turn things around for them. Um, but yeah. also to balance that confidence and that faith in yourself with a humility that Chinese medicine is so vast, it's so deep. Um, there should be no expectation that you graduate as a strong herbalist um, and that you, you know, in a sense, uh, that you're, you've not reached any kind of terminal level or anything like that once you've graduated. And so it's an invitation to go deeper and graduate with a master's and a license. But I would say it's like a yellow belt from a martial arts perspective. And there's still a lot of room <laughs> for growth and mastery. So to find for the sure. teachers that you're interested in um, or the programs that you're interested in and, and keep going, go deeper uh, and all your future patients will think. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. It's always such a fun adventure to have you on the podcast. Thanks again, Phil. You're very welcome. I enjoy it so much. And uh, all the best, Stacey. I'll talk to you soon. That's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys. And if you appreciate this podcast, it would be amazing if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a great review. And if you don't like what I'm doing, then that's okay. No worries. Just skip it.